Welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project, brought to you from、um, the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh on a hideously windy day. Although I think, in global terms, perhaps not hideously windy. I'm Christopher Connor. I'm David Robertson, and our interview this week is from our good friend George Ionides, and it is with Whitney Bowman on the subject of religion and planetary ethics. So, tell us what that means, George. Hi everyone, it's、uh, George Ianides here, and I am quite fortunate to be joined today by Whitney Bowman, who is associate professor of religious studies at Florida International University in Miami,、uh, where he is also director in the program for the study of spirituality.、Uh, he has been visiting professor at Gajah Mada University in Yogyakarta, Indonesia,、um, and he researches and teaches on the topics of religion and ecology, religion and science. Uh, environmental and bioethics, secularism and globalization, religion and queer theory, and philosophies of science and religion, among others. <laughs>、uh, he's the author of Religion and Ecology: Developing a Planetary Ethic,、uh, and Theology, Creation, and Environmental Ethics. And he's the co-editor of Science and Religion: One Planet, Many Possibilities, Inherited Land: The Changing Grounds of Religion and Ecology. And grounding religion: a field guide to the study of religion and ecology. This interview is being recorded at the 2015 World Congress of the International Association for the History of Religions,、uh, held in Erfurt, Germany,、uh, where Whitney has delivered a paper on religion, secularity, globalization, and climate change. Whitney, welcome to the Religious Studies Project, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Pleasure. So I wanted to start with a focus on your recent book. Religion and ecology: developing a planetary ethic,、um, which I think is fantastic and quite groundbreaking、uh, for its attempt to materialise and think religions as planetary.、Um, so, for listeners not familiar with your work, I was wondering、um, if you could elaborate on this concept of planetarity、um, and what you see as its importance for. Religion and ecology. Sure. So、um, there's a couple of ways to think about it. One is、um, sort of we think about、uh, in general a more spatial turn of religion. And what I mean is rather than having、uh, sort of、uh, religions be about hierarchy coming down and sort of organizing things, that religions sort of emerge from、uh, the planetary context. And so、um, whatever religion is, it emerges from the planetary context and returns to affect that context. So it's literally. Materializing and 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 mattering bodies all around us, human and non-human, this sort of thing.、Um, so I, I I get this、uh, term itself though from、uh, Gayatri Spivak, and her book、um, Death of a Discipline. The third chapter is called Planetarity. So、um, that's how、uh, that's where I, the term comes from for me. And she uses that as a way to、um, think about how to bring difference together. That's not、um, sort of the erasure of difference into some sort of common. Denominator, but、uh, maintains difference. So she juxtaposes planetarity with globalization. For her, globalization is like、uh, the like Derrida's notion of global Latinization, which is the 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 making global of a certain one way of becoming.、Um, so it's sort of a colonization of the of the entire globe being enforced、um, uh, on the globe, mostly Western ideals.、Um, You know, reason. Now we say, now we say it's progress or development or、um, uh, uh, something like this.、Uh, 
uh, scientific, you know, reason versus these silly superstitions, right? Um, that that you might find elsewhere. Um, so globalization is sort of trying to uh, is sort of an, imp- an imp- imposition, whereas uh, planetarity is trying to come together through the various contexts um, to sort of sort of uh, bring together the planet with their differences, you know, um, um, making. Um, uh, the connections uh, with the various textures and terrains that the planet uh, uh, has. So rather than a leveling of those differences. So that's sort of um, uh, one one entry into this idea of planetarity. The other one comes from this metaphor that uh, Ursula Heise uses. Um, she is at Stanford, I think. I don't remember. Uh, she's an eco-critic. And she has this um, uh, notion of bringing nature, technology, humans all together. Um, sort of felt like Donna Haraway or um, something like this. But for her, the, the, the juxtaposition is the little blue ball, right? The, 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 the little blue ball spinning through space that has become uh, sort of uh, uh, ubiquitous with the uh, environmental movement, um, right? Uh, so she says, rather than that, this is a very smooth place. It's detached. You can see the whole globe at once. What we need is something like Google Maps, right, that zooms in and zooms out so you can make the connections but then also see the various textures of the terrain. And uh, uh, this is what we need in terms of thinking about uh, a planetary ethic rather than this sort of gentle blue ball sort of spinning through space. Everything's, you know, sort of happy. And no, we need to zoom in on the differences but at the same time be able to step back and see how they're connected. So... Um, that's that's sort of uh, my uh, my two ways of of trying to explain this concept planetarity. Mm. Yeah. You bring about you brought about the notion of difference, mm-hmm. which seems to be at the core um, of both really conceptions of of planetarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and your work is very um, strongly in favor of elucidating multiplicity mm-hmm. difference. Um, multiple perspectives in the way that we view um, religions um, and ecology in a planetary sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe um, further elaborate on this relationship between um, difference and multiplicity. Um, yeah, sure. Planetarity. Um, so, of course, this is this is conceptually drawing from things like queer theory and um, also uh, new materialisms, uh, but uh, more a little more distant Deleuze and Guattari's um, mm-hmm. uh, ideas um, of multiplicity. Um, so, so I guess the best, the, my best way to describe it is, um, I'll just say like rather than so we often we think of of difference as a, a being contained in something like oh you've got a little of this here a little of this here a little of this here um but i want to see it as a much more um fundamental so that we start from not um any uh origin point or anything like that but we start from multiplicity um so there's a multiverse right instead of a universe um or uh um uh so anyways that's just one way to think about uh beginnings Rather than origins in that way, um, because I think lots of times what we want to, what we try to do is we think, oh, the goal is, you know, to bring all this difference together so that we can end up in some sort of common, you know, well, mm. e- eventually we'll end up on some common agreed upon thing. And I want to steer clear of that uh, because it's um, in the work that I do in religion and nature stuff, especially 
very rampant on the religion side um, and, and interreligious dialogues, right? Oh, we'll just identify the things that are in common uh, with our religion and we'll just forget about those different things, right? Um, and then on the nature side, it's like, well, it's nature, right? Nature is just one and it tells us what to do and uh, this sort of thing. Uh, once we figure out what's natural, you know, we'll be able to um, we'll be able to agree on on this as a as a way forward, and and these are both very problematic terms. Nat- nature, of course, for uh, in terms of what in terms of race, gender, and sexuality, this has been a very problematic uh, sort of foundation for for thinking about the world. But and then on the religion side, of course, for, with all the colonial projects and these sorts of things. So for me, multiplicity is a way to talk about um, interconnectedness without having some sort of common denominator, whether that's nature or God or origin or end, um, but to suggest that we can have these multiple different ways of becoming, and there is no outside by which it's being judged. So um, it's more like uh, what I would call, what Thomas Tweed calls a spiritual cartography or something like this. Religion is like, religions are like spiritual cartographies. They provide us a way forward, and then, uh, you know, if they're persuasive enough, people will move in this direction, right? Uh, but, um, but it's not because it matches, um, uh, a sort of truth that's out there, but it's because we're co-creating these truths all along the way. Um, so I guess one way that, um, I've talked about it before is that, um, just like, you know, a thousand years ago, um, people lived very differently. Um, and a thousand years from now, people live very differently, but that doesn't mean they're any less true. We create these, we co-create these worlds with the, with the worlds around us into, uh, certain truth regimes, right? Certain ways that matter the world. So whereas, um, some places that might be, uh, a bit more animistic or something like this, um, currently the, the dominant one happens to be technological, right? And it's very persuasive because it got us here today, right? Um, I flew here on a plane, not a, not God, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. it's, it's very persuasive computers, right? And the things that we can do with them, we're, we're sort of drawn to it and we're literally organizing the world according to this truth regime, this technological truth regime, but it has its consequences. Uh, which is which is why uh, looking at things like climate change and globalization are so important because these are the the abjected realities of what the um, uh, current uh, truth regime, uh, whether you want to call it the capitalocene or 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 um, uh, techno modernity, whatever you want to call it, the the abject uh, the abjected from these um, these meaning making practices are um, you know the quote unquote the poor, which I hate that term. I try not to use it, but uh but uh but but our human bodies, right, that are impoverished, are are dying uh, you know, forests, our species going extinct, the climate change, these are all things that are abjected from this uh this truth regime, right? And they they literally are called that by economists as externalities, right? These are externalities. These are these don't matter. All that matters is money changing hands and this you know this sort of thing. So um, anyways, this is going way off course, but this is, this no, is what absolutely. I mean by the, that's at the heart of this multiplicity is that it's not a, 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 a sort of step along the way, but it just is multiplicity. Um, so, um, I think another person that talks about this in, in a way that I quite like is Bruno Latour and he talks about the collective and, and the need to, you know, to come together and we can be representatives on behalf of the atom and the, and the, you know, and, uh, uh, and the molecules and, and animals and trees and these sorts of things. Um, these, these voices have to be represented in this sort of collective. 
um, um, of humans, nature, technology. Um, and we'll decide on something. Um, every, every time we decide on a way of becoming, we're going to leave voices out, and eventually those voices will come back to make a claim on that collective to say, hey, open up and let us in, and we'll change again, we'll change again, and we'll change again ad infinitum. And I think this is a better way to think about ethics and truth and, um, and, you know, if you will, metaphysics than, than to assume that, that somehow we're going to reach this, the end, we're going to reach the horizon and there won't be another horizon, right? There's always going to be another horizon. So yeah, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think your work is a really passionate call for ethical thinking and action, mm-hmm. isn't it? And, um, you do speak a lot about how we need to reconfigure our ethical engagement, um, with ourselves and earth others. Mm-hmm. Um, and this notion of difference and multiplicity is, is at the core of that. Um, so could you tell us some more about how you, um, engage with ethics, Mm -hmm. um, planetary ethics in particular, um, the title of, of your work, um, and, and, and its relationship with, um, religion. Yeah, so I guess, uh, let's see. So for me, I guess the easiest way, I'm thinking where to start, how, how long do you want me to talk about? How fast will you fall asleep? Um, so um, for me, I guess the, the main sort of beginning point for me is with religion because a lot of people are, you know, one of the things I get is, well, you're not doing religion. And well, yes, I am. Um, but um Without sounding too flip, I mean, basically, religion is a lot of different things. It's not just these major world traditions. It's, you know, um, not just spirituality, but it's, to me, I go back to the etymological sort of history of religion and, and thinking about it, um, uh, to religare and religare, which is to reread or to bind back or to bring together, um, these two Latin, uh, uh, different beginnings for the word religion. And, um, and that, to me, is what it is. It's a meaning-making practice. Very, that's a very Heideggerian way of thinking about it. But humans are meaning-making creatures, um, and and so we can't help but make meaning um, out of our lives. And so, I mean, even Richard Dawkins, right, or, or Christopher Hitchens, are, are making meaning out of their lives. Um, it may be through through a very yeah. different story, right? Um, but they're making meaning out of their lives. They don't just get up and say, "Well, it's one damn thing after another," right? No, they put mm. their their lives into a context, and they're very passionate about stamping out those things that they they don't agree with, right? Yeah. Um, so, um, so this is this is a this is a meaning making practice, and that's that's how I look at religion, and that can be. Um, that can be environmentalism for people. Um, it can be, uh, uh, my, my friend, uh, in Berlin is going to put on a conference that looks at orientation as a spirituality, right? Sexual orientation, mm, right? Yeah. How it's become this whole identity. Identity politics are very good at becoming this meaning making practice, um, uh, this type of meaning making practice. So, so with having said that, what I, I always tell my students when I've been in class, I don't really care what you believe in. <laughs> You can believe in the flying spaghetti monster. You can believe, you know, that God uh, sleeps with you at night, whatever. Um, what I care about is is how your um, beliefs affect others, like taking responsibility for your beliefs and not blaming 
the Bible or nature or, you know, reason. Reason, you know, reason says that I should do this. Reason dictates. No, take responsibility for the ripple effects of your belief system and how they affect other earth bodies. And so for me, um, uh, theology, if you will, is much, is much more about, um, an ethical and aesthetic engagement with the world than it is about metaphysics or, um, uh, or, or, or duty or anything like that. It's, it's much more, um, about how do, how do my beliefs materialize in the world and how does it affect, you know, um, you know, cats and dogs and people in Indonesia and people in uh, South American countries. And, you know, how does, how does the way that we've organized our lives around what we find to be meaningful, um, affect the world around us? Um, and once we see these, um, you know, uh, people and animals and, you know, uh, processes of life for which these meaning making practices are violent, um, then we need to, uh, you know, perhaps amend, uh, our, our value system and start moving in a different direction, uh, that takes account of this type of violence. Absolutely. And I think it's a very relational, you know, um, understanding of, um, as you say, our, the ripple effect mm-hmm. of, um, our actions in the world. Um, and this kind of, these relational ontologies seem to me to be very important to this fascination in certain sections of the academy, which yeah. is, um, you know, some people call it the non-human turn. Um, some call it, you know, more of an emphasis on, on animal studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and new materialism is, is one of those kind of things. Um, do you, would you like to see um, these bodies of work more embraced by the wider study of religion or even vice versa, perhaps questions of religion being more embraced by those fields? Um, yeah, actually, I think it's I think it's a both and thing there because um, it's funny you should say that because I'm actually working with um, uh, Mary Evelyn Tucker and she was who she's the co-director of the Forum on Religion and Ecology, and Catherine Keller, who's a theologian. And we're working together to try to organize this um, this seminar at the AAR, at the Annual American Academy of Religion. Mm. Um, and what we want to do is create this, uh, this like, three-year-ish seminar to bring people that are doing object-oriented, so like Timothy Morton, uh, doing object-oriented ontology, um, people that are doing uh, new materialism, people that are doing emergence theory, mm-hmm. um, which is also one of these things, people that are do, like Mel Chen, who's doing um, animal anima- animosity, I can't ever say that right, correctly, <laughs> um, uh, people that are doing these sorts of eminent relational ways of thing, together with people that are doing Confucian studies and Taoist studies and Buddhist studies and also some uh, uh, indigenous studies, right? And some, um, uh, uh, you know, just basic pantheists or, or panentheists, right? But these these traditions have a lot to say about uh, sort of the... What I would call what I would call the spatial turn, right? Mm. <laughs> moving the the flattening uh, 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 or moving to the horizontal axis. Um, uh, so these these religious traditions also have uh, resources um, um, for bringing humans, animals, nature, technology all together onto what would what the D and G I always called in Dolce and Gabbana, um, what the, what they would call the the single plane, right, yeah. of eminence, right? 
And so, um, the, in a sense, there are resources within some of these traditions that have been doing that. And so I hear from my history of religion type people, I don't understand why you're so interested in the new materialism and emergence because they already said this a long time ago. It's like, yeah, but it's different. And I hear from new materialism people and object, uh, Tim Morton's a great example. He is very much influenced by Buddhism, mm. but he doesn't really talk about that in his object oriented ontology. Um, Terrence Deacon, who's an emergent theorist at yeah, UC Berkeley, very much influenced by uh, Taoism, um, which and he mentions it some, but uh, there's not been really any study of how um, important some of these older, you know, ancient ideas are for these newer ideas, um, new materialisms, uh, on relational ontologies, this sort of thing. So I would like to see much more engagement on both sides so that, um, you know, I think there could be a fruitful dialogue there and also uh, uh, just, you know, sort of, admitting where some of this might come from historically, but also to show that, no, it's not just the same thing as, as, as good old Taoism or good old Buddhism, but it's, it's, it's taking it in a different direction. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And, and I think your work is exemplary for kind of instantiating this dialogue because, um, for, for those listeners who, who aren't familiar with it, you draw on so many, you know, seemingly, disparate kind of topics and case studies Mm -hmm. from Buddhism, Jainism, um, non-equilibrium thermodynamics. Like I remember, I remember that, um, you know, intersex persons, um, and politics, um, in various contexts, um, in, in the way that you also bring about, um, identity politics as, as we were talking about before. Um, would you have any advice for for listeners in religious studies fascinated or um, having their minds open right now uh, and quite interested in, in pursuing um, these topics and ideas? How can they go about um, how can they go about such a process? By I guess how how can we be as thoroughly interdisciplinary? Mm. Um, as your own work in the field? Well, first of all, if there is anybody that is <laughs> enticed by this, then please let me know because I feel like I'm usually <laughs> speaking to no one. No. Um, He's one. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it's really hard. You know, it's, I think it's harder in, uh, in, in graduate school, um, especially because, I mean, I, this is obviously this book on planetarity is, a, is after I've graduated and I have a tenure track job, right? And mm. luckily I'm in a university system that supports interdisciplinary um, thinking. So I often teach for the women's and gender studies department and I teach for environmental studies as well. Um, so there's uh, this, this type of collaboration is sort of built into this, you know, um, this hybrid position that I have um, at, at, at Florida International University. So on the one part, it's going to take um, institutions to help support this type of thing and, and, and to not always be looking for, you know, uh, I have a good friend who I love dearly. He's a Kantian scholar, but he just wrote a 400 page book on modality and Kant, right? Wow. I mean, so, so maybe two people in the world will understand what he's saying, but this is what, this is what, uh, this is what academics are tend to do, right? Is mm. to get into this more narrow and narrow thing. And, and, and sort of, then it's like, well, you've just 
spend six years of your life writing this book for that two people are going to read, right? So um, I think part of it is um, as, as, as sort of, you know, um, finding the institutions that support this type of work and encouraging those institutions. Um, but also, I mean, obviously there, there, are, there are some common things that, that, um, that, that hold everything together because otherwise we would just be doing everything all the time um, and we wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to, to publish anything. But, um, and for me, that's, that's always been a, a commitment to sort of however you want to call it, the um, ecology or systems. It might be different for different people, but I think having a, something common in the, in the, on the horizon, right, uh, mm. if you will, that, that, that brings it all together. Um, is a is a much better way of of thinking about um, uh, thinking about scholarship than sort of um, you know I'm going to dig into this and you know not look at everything else and how it affects it right because knowledge too is in relation always and 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 already and the fact that we can now look back from our where we are now and see that you know there was always uh, uh, sharing of information going on through the Silk Road and and so forth through the Convivencia. Um, through then colonization, right? All these traditions have always already been mixed up. Um, or if you look at a single tradition, right? The the uh, I mean, for instance, uh, the Old Testament stories, Hebrew Hebrew Bible comes out of its context in the ancient Near East, and we can see the direct parallels of the things that that end up in the in that testament, right? So this gives flesh and context, I think, to um, to uh, traditions to see that they begin from multiplicity, right? And so it's impossible just to say, okay, well, I'm only going to stick with this when it's when it when it's in this sort of uh, relational context all along. Um, so I think this is not so much an answer, but I think having a, a passion or, or some sort of common. Some you're moving towards a certain direction, right? Maybe for me, it's like I want to see. The world, um, you know, uh, to, I want the world to look different and not sort of, um, to, uh, for the, the, not to go off a cliff with the whole climate weirding thing. Um, so I think we can live differently in a way that respects many other life forms and, and other people. So, okay, that's my, that's my sort of, that's my sale, right? Yeah. Um, uh, there's lots of things that will, that will get caught in that sale. Um, and I think it's, it's, and bending them towards sort of what uh, pushes that along, I guess, is a, is a, is a, is a way to think about it. Um, yeah, I mean, because I don't do, I don't sit, I don't get usually get bogged down, and and to some, and this is a good thing and a bad thing, but I don't usually get bogged down and and very um, sort of uh, parochial little arguments between this this new materialism theorist and this new materialism mm. theorist, right? Yeah. Uh, because it matters in the end um, what um, uh, the traction that the concepts will have to, to move um, to move a, to move the conversation along, I think, mm. in a way that I think is, is helpful or better or just different from what we have now, which is what we need, uh, difference, yeah. <laughs> different conversations. So... Yeah. It's a, it's really about moving away from solipsistic, absolutely disciplinary and and you know personal identities mm-hmm. and embracing hybridity. Right, right, embracing yeah. hybridity, um, but not in a way that um, uh, sort of flattens positionality. Right. Mm. So because my body has encountered the world, um, it's born into this world in a certain way. My whiteness, my maleness, you know, my gayness. Right. All these things matter in terms of 
the way that uh, the way that my body is treated, right? So mm-hmm. I grew up in in the South uh, of the United States, right? And I went to school at Little Rock Central High School, which is very famous for the Civil Rights Movement because in the '60s they had to was forced integration with the National Guard, and so it's very it's like part of the National Historic Register mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Very much still a racist, um, you know. There's very much still racism in the culture there, obviously. We've seen this with the the Black Lives Matter movement and and all the problems we've had in the U.S. right with race recently, but um, but my my point is that I always tell students, you know, if I if my body was not white, I would not be up here as a professor today. I would be in prison because mm-hmm. I was a wild kid, and you know, when the white wild kids, the cops were like, oh, just go home, you know, we'll call your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, if if I was black, they would have arrested me, sent me to prison, and I would have been a casualty of the prison industrial complex. So, you know, my positionality in the world matters. So these differences do matter. And that's what you, you don't want to level out with this sort of hybridity and relationality. But um, these are not essential differences, right? They're, they're positions. Mm. Um, and like everything else, they shift as our relations shift. Um, and so we, we have some some wiggle room to try to shift our, our positions and relationships between positions toward something different, right? Yeah. Toward being in the world in a different way. Mm. And on that note, I, I wanted to ask a final question. Being in the world um, in a different way is quite fascinating when you think about it in, um, I want to say parallel, but I don't like it as a, as a term, but glo- uh, climate weeding mm-hmm. and this, the ecological crises amongst many others that we are seeing in the world today. Um, how, how do you recommend we, we as um, scholars and students of whether it be religion, ecology, any other, you know, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary fields um, that you might be involved in, how can we um, go about addressing um and engaging with these, these weird climates. Um, yeah. These immense on. issues. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't know. Um, and nobody knows mm. really what the answer is going to be. We just know that we can't keep doing the same thing. The sort of fossil fueled realities that we've created are just, uh, you know, outstripping the regenerative capacity of the planet. And uh, we just have to acknowledge that and say, okay, well, then what can we do? Um, I mean, and obviously I think we don't, we don't need to engage in sort of backbiting and be like, oh, well, you flew here on a plane, so you're part of the problem, right? Yeah. Um, uh, or you're not a, you're not a vegan. What's wrong with you? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think these, these types of things, um, they matter, of course, um, says the vegetarian, usually. <laughs> um, but they, but they're, but they're not, they're not, they're, they're a molehill. That shouldn't be mistaken for a mountain because the mountain is, um, is this climate weirding and we don't know sort of what we've done to the planet um, mm. and, 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 and exactly what the repercussions are going to be. I just saw today that a huge chunk of the size of Manhattan fell off the Greenland ice shelf. So, like, it's happening Jeez. faster than yeah. we thought, right? Mm. Um, and for me, uh, you know, my, my, big, uh, my, my, my big move now in terms of climate weirding is that we need to think about, we need to think about these alternatives, but we also need to seriously th- start thinking about adaptations, because if we don't allow, um, if we don't start thinking about adaptation, and that is recognizing that some places are are going to be a lost cause, and what are we going to do with all those people, those species, so on and so forth? 
Mm-hmm. So um, in my own context, you know, living in Miami, right, in the Everglades, right, mm-hmm. um, I love the Everglades, but I think the Everglades are probably a lost cause because the, the saltwater is already inundating sort of freshwater aquifers in South Florida. There's no way to stop it with a seawall because the, the ground uh, rock is limestone, so it's porous, so the water just comes in. Um, eventually the salt water is going to encroach upon the Everglades and that's going to end the, the, the ecosystem of the Everglades. We're spending 200, uh, you know, something like $200 million right now doing some restoration projects, right? But, but what's going to happen when we finally realize in 20, 30, 40 years that it's no longer viable to live in South Florida because the freshwater is inundated with salt water and every time it rains, the streets are flooded, which they already do now. And, you know, um, so on and so, and we have bigger storms, whatever. We need to think about how we're going, what are we going to do with all these species that were in the Everglades? I think we need to be cataloging them, um, for, you know, for future generations. Um, we need to, uh, perhaps think about, uh, transferring some species to other mm. places where they might survive. Um, even though that comes with its own set of problems. Um, we also need to think about the relocation of peoples on a, on a mass scale that, um, that we haven't, that the world hasn't seen, um, at least in recorded history, um, this type of relocation, because, um, otherwise it's going to be like what happens usually in a disaster. Mm. Um, the poorest people, um, and usually people of color are affected most. And also the, the ecosystem and the animals and these sorts of things are just sort of left to fend for themselves. So I think that we really need to start thinking about on, uh, about sort of cutting or not cutting our losses, but <laughs> really facing with the, with, this fact that we are in, um, we're, 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 we need to mourn the world that we no longer have and move on from that mourning to help uh, uh, create some sort of different world. Or it's just going to be much worse. If we, leave, if we just leave it up to the way things are, it's going to be much worse, I think, than, than, than what we can do um, mm. in terms of creating a different, a different possibility for this changed future mm. that we're going to have to live into. So. Absolutely. And ending with a ending by bringing it back to the study of religion. Um, I think understanding religion, as you say um, in your book, I have to, I have to quote you here because I love this turn of phrase religions as eco-social constructions across multiple species over multiple generations and over multiple histories, um, which I just love. Um <laughs> can be very helpful for um, this kind of, of thinking and action. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the I had a um, professor when I was doing my master's at Vanderbilt, Sally McFaig, who does like eco-theology. Um, and she always said, you know, we have the right, uh, we have the right hardware. We have these religious institutions um, that have, you know, some like 5.8 billion people are part of one of these major mm. world religions, but we have the wrong software <laughs> for these religions. They're outdated. They're um, hierarchical. They're they're more and and they're more focused on uh, on sort of furthering their own survival than they are sort of engaging with the world. And so, what we need is for uh, the 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 software to become planetary, if you will. Um, so yeah. So for for me um, uh, to just to end on, a, on another. One of my favorite quotes from Mary Evelyn Tucker again, she says, you know, this is, you know, religions are all about expanding the, the locus of, of ethical and moral concern. So beyond tribe and, and sort of nation, 
uh, and also to all genders, to all races, now to all humanity. And now the, the religions are sort of expanding their moral concern to the entire planet. Um, so that animals and, 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 and ecosystems and all these sorts of things are part of what we reflect about when we're thinking uh, morally, ethically, uh, imaginatively, these sorts of things. So, Fantastic. And on that note, we, Whitney, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. And for talking to the Religious Studies Project um, on these very important issues. Thank you so much. It's always nice to be heard. So, <laughs> Well, that was a real tour de force there from George. I know that George was a bit worried that he'd maybe got a bit too, um, I don't mean insider, that he'd maybe got a bit too esoteric, esoteric in, in, in the terminology and, you know, cause um, it's an area that George knows very well. And so that, that he and Whitney were, were bouncing ideas off each other, but, um, but I don't, I think it comes across well. And, um, George was keen to let you know that if you are interested in following up on anything from the podcast, look at the links on the podcast page. Fantastic. And I know that uh, George is one of those interviewers who really takes a lot of time to prepare and think through the structure of it in, in advance. So he needn't worry, I don't think. Now, who's the response from this week? And the response is from Hunter Bandy this week. Uh, so we look forward to that. And, you know, as ever... Thanks to Kevin for uh, racking up the responses for us. We've got, oh, especially at this time when he's just, um, he's just become a father. Yeah. Just welcomed the arrival of his, of his daughter Zoe. So yeah. congratulations to you, Kevin, from all of us. Yes. And Katie, of course. And Katie. <laughs> um, yeah. So that will be good. And, um, next week is another interview that I recorded and it's another interview from the IHR conference. Um, and it's with my colleague, um, Johannes Quack. He's at the University of Zurich. Um, and we talked about, um, Indian rationalism and, um, which is the basis of his, his doctoral um, ethnographic research is based in Maharashtra. Um, and then we also talked particularly about an article that he had in Method and Theory, um, on a relational approach to the category of the, the non-religious. Um, so yeah, using Indian rationalism as an example. It's going to be very interesting indeed. And it seems that our listeners are finding our season so far to be very interesting indeed because this has been our busiest month the month since we came back from our summer break um in the history of the religious studies project since uh, going back to 2012 when we launched mm-hmm. so thanks to everyone and keep spreading the word because we continue to grow absolutely yeah we were just talking on the train um yesterday about how um even during our summer break um this year um oh, our downloads and our website hits were higher than they were at any point, basically during the first two years when we were actually putting out material. <laughs> sure. um, so we're, we're very, very chuffed. It shows that. that persistence pays off. Exactly. Yeah. You can't get rid of us that easily. Um, remember our Amazon links. Um, if you're in the UK, US or Canada, we can benefit at no cost to you from using those and uh, Facebook and Twitter and iTunes are your friends. Or, well, maybe not. I don't really think Facebook is your friend, actually. But we all seem to use it, and we are on there. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it works for us, but maybe not for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, other than that, the only thing I think there is to say is, what's the, what's the line here? Um, go away. Um, um, thank, thank you. Smell, for, smell you later. Uh, wouldn't want to be you. 
Thanks for listening. <laughs>